please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Last week, we started a new series called Future Church. As we come, in theory, out of lockdown and back together, no hard date set yet, but we're working on a March kind of start date for regathering as a church. It's time to dream again about the future of our church and our city and to really ask the question, how do we not just come back together, but how do we come back even better? As we all know, in the post-COVID, post, I say that in faith, post-2020 socio-political landscape, we are facing a whole new array of challenges and of intensity to the challenges from before. How do we reframe our cultural moment from anxiety to possibility? Our aim each week over the next month or two is to take an in-depth look at one of the challenges that we are facing, then dream for a few minutes about the kind of church, the kind of community as followers of Jesus that we want to grow and mature into as an alternative society in Anabaptist language. How do we stand in sharp relief to our day? And then we want to take a few minutes to kind of review and revisit a practice or a spiritual discipline from our rule of life to index, to kind of move from idea and theory to praxis and reality to index us away from the anxiety and toward the possibility. Up on the docket for this morning is a community of tight-knit, loving relationships and a culture of individualism and tribalism. On that note, Romans 12 in just a few minutes. Spirit of God, we just welcome your presence and your peace Let all of us, let me, all who are watching online, all who are in the basement this morning, attend to your loving voice. Let us live from a posture of sitting at your feet and listening to your word. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. I just read that article that's going around in Forbes on the death of a city with a photograph of downtown Portland right across the front. Listen to the opening line, how long does it take for a city to die? Downtowns across the city have emptied due to the pandemic, causing many stores and restaurants to close. But in Portland, Oregon, continued violence and vandalism has combined with high housing costs, homelessness, and poor community leadership to raise the question, how long before this city dies? Good morning, by the way. As I read that article, you know, my gut reaction was a mix of fear and grief. But then I started to dream from anxiety to possibility. What if our church, which started downtown just a few blocks from the photograph, and God willing, that's back on the agenda in months to come, what if we were to function as agents of healing and renewal and to catalyze not the death but the rebirth of our city on the other side of COVID? I would argue that we are uniquely positioned to inject life into our city. It was sad to see our city become another pawn in the culture wars last summer as the New York Times and Ilk and President Trump and Fox News kind of fought it out online with Portland as political theater, as as a weapon in ideological warfare. 
The reality on the ground, as we all know here in Portlanders, was very different from the online version. Many experts argue that Portland is one of, if not the most individualistic cities, not only in America, but in all of the world. A lot of people move here for that fact and love that about the city. But the shadow side to the individualism of Portland and much of the West is that so many people, I don't know, I mean hundreds of thousands of people in our city were living through the acute pain of 2020, the cascade effect of a pandemic and recession and injustice and the political pain and fires, like everything alone. Lonely and sad with no one to process all of that trauma with. There's been all sorts of research over the last decade plus on the science of happiness. And in the 1,500 or so now peer-reviewed articles and academic studies, and you can read a great summary of that from somebody like Arthur Brooks, what's interesting is you know, there aren't 400 different factors on what makes a human being happy or sad. You can basically summarize it down to three or four. Basically, and this is my report of much smarter people than me, people are happy if they have four things. One, a few close friends. If they know and are known, if they have people that they feel safe with, kind of ego and shadow in union language, like not just the self you project to the world, but who you actually are and who you're scared to even face in your own life. Just people who aren't perfect, but when they're happy, we're happy. And when they're sad, we're sad and vice versa. Two, a nuclear family as non-politically correct as that is, a mom and dad and brothers and sisters, and not just biology, but kin, kind of an extended family of blood and not blood, people that we do life with together. Three, meaningful work, and it does not matter if it's high pain or not at all, if it's a glamorous career or if it's very kind of humdrum. If people feel when they go to work like they make a contribution to human flourishing, even at a very ordinary level, then at the end of the day, they feel good about life. And finally, a theology or philosophy to make sense not only of life, but more importantly of death and of suffering, which is exactly what secularism cannot give us. Basically, friends, family, vocation, and religion. We are living as a generation through the hollowing out of all four of those factors. Due to all sorts of things, at the top of the list, of course, is the shift in our generation to a digital world. The average American in just a few years, not decades, years, has gone from 3.2 friends to 1.8, meaning friendship across, across our nation has been cut in half. Robert Putnam's work, he's famous for his book, Bowling Alone, which is actually very old now about the decline of community organizations in America, but all of his recent work is on kind of friendship. His most recent estimate is that, or data, is that 40% of American adults have zero to one confidant. 40% literally have little to no one to just talk with, to process pain with, to process something like all of the last year with. Doctors are calling loneliness the greatest pathology of our time. Our former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, in an article for the Harvard Business Review, said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. And all of the data would argue that Americans are literally the loneliest people in the world. 
Now, there's a historical reason for this and a current one, and you know most of this. The historical one is that America is a social experiment built around the idea of what the sociologist Robert Bella called radical individualism. He called that the defining trait of Americans. In every culture, there is a tension between the individual and the group. In traditional cultures, the weight is over on the side of the group, which can feel oppressive or repressive. But America, and really all of the West, but our nation in particular was a reaction, or I would argue an overreaction, against the abuse of authority structures in traditional culture in pre-Enlightenment Europe. As a result, we're way over on the other side of the pendulum. There's a root of radical individualism deep in the hummus of America that has turned rotten over the centuries. De Tocqueville, after his tour through America in 1831, named extremist individualism as the defining American trait and said that if left unchecked, it would mean the abolition of humanity. We think about religious extremism, right, or political extremism. Think about individualist extremism. Because individualism, if you prefer, or if you prefer the synonym autonomy, is in direct tension with all four of the factors for a happy life. Close friendships, family, work to an extent, and for sure, religion, all require us to surrender our autonomy to someone or something beyond ourselves to come out, as C.S. Lewis once said, of the prison of the self and come to give your life away in love to another. You can have autonomy or you can have loving relationships, but it's very hard, if not impossible, to have both. Then the current reason is the tribalism caused by all things digital mixed with the, the brokenness of the human condition. If Instagram or social media is a kind of pseudo-community, then tribalism is a kind of anti-community. It's based not on mutual love, but on mutual hate. Not on what you are for, but what you are against. But if you, again, are lonely and sad and don't really know who you are, you don't have an identity in Christ, then anti-community is better than no community. One author writes, the tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals it sought to free. And as long as there have been humans, there have been tribes at war. What's new is not tribes. In fact, I would argue tribes aren't even all bad. But the tribalism caused by the kind of lethal combo of individualism deep in our culture, which is then exacerbated by the digital age. For a growing number of people, their primary community, and with that, their identity, their sense of self, their sense of self-worth, their moral vision, their sense of the meaning and purpose of life, their sense of direction and what life is all about, comes from the online world, not from real-life relationships. This is the most gracious interpretation I can think of of why people believe conspiracy theories and follow fake news. It's because their people are online more than they are in the real world. I was listening to a lecture recently from a senator, I won't give his name, but he was educated at Yale as a historian, and it was really interesting to hear a senator in this cultural climate, and he was very clear, he said, right now all of the obsession is about politics and the, the kind of war between left and right. But he said, actually, I think that when historians tell the story of our generation, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when we're all dead, they will not tell a story of political polarization, they will tell a story about the digital disruption, about what the internet and social media and the shift to an online world 
the, the massive, similar to kind of the agrarian to industrial revolution he was saying, which was a time of great tumult in America at a political level, moral level across the board. We're living through something like that now, that shift from an industrial to a digital world. The tribalism of our time is tearing the fabric of our nation apart, our city apart at some level, families apart, and churches even like ours apart. Now, Deep breath, all 10 of you in the room this morning. Um, I have good news for you. I have literally, I have gospel of Jesus Christ for you. And I'm full of hopeful energy for the future of our church. And we're more needed now in our city than we have ever been before. In the teachings of Jesus, and I'm thinking here especially of the Sermon on the Mount, which in our kind of reading of the Bible is centrist age, and in the writings of the New Testament, we find a searingly honest but at the same time, beautiful and compelling vision of the church as an alternate society in sharp relief to the individualism and tribalism of our day. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 12. Um, Romans chapter 12 is one of my favorite passages on community in all of the New Testament. If you're new to the New Testament, Romans as a whole is a theological masterpiece. The first kind of eight chapters are in-depth theology, are all about what God has done for us, and not just for us, but for all of creation in Christ, through Christ's coming and his life and his teachings and his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the coming of the Spirit of Jesus. It's all about what God has done. Then chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about what Christ has done in the church, how Christ gave birth through his act of love that was his life. He gave birth to a new multi-ethnic Jew plus Gentile family, two groups, two social groups that in the first century were literally at each other's throats in pain and war and oppression and injustice, two groups that have now come together in Christ to live as family. Then in chapter 12, you get this hinge chapter, the opening line, verse one we're about to read is therefore, meaning in light of the last nine chapters of theology about what God has done in Christ and what Christ has done in the church. Now, therefore, listen to the vision of how we are to do life together as followers of Jesus, who before, in a previous era, were at each other's throats. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, notice the pastoral call, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, just based on like, like that's his summary of all nine chapters of, of theology, just God's mercy. Offer your bodies, your whole self, not just your mind, not just your belief system or your doctrine, your bodies, your sexualities, your soul, your spirit, your relational, all that you are to God as a living sacrifice. Just surrender everything, holy, set apart, dedicated to God, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't live like Portland or America or the right or the left, but be transformed formed by the renewing of your mind, a whole other neural vision of reality. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. That's the center point, God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Note Paul's first metaphor for the church is family. Adelphoi is the Greek word used. It's translated here brothers and sisters. He's saying we're a family, but pays close attention. And Paul here is riffing on Jesus' teaching in Mark 4, where Jesus said, my family, my brothers and sisters, are those who do the will of God. We are a family, not built around blood and soil, or around political ideology, or tribalism, or even our ethnic identity, but around doing the will of God together, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're family. Next metaphor, verse three. For by the grace given me, like it's just all grace, it's all gift, I say to every one of you, no exceptions to the rule here, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Humility is the prerequisite for the community we're about to read of. Verse four, for just as each of us has one body with many members, I have an arm, I have a leg, I have fingers, all of that, and these members do not all have the same function, my arm does one thing, my head does another thing, my ears do another thing, so in Christ, and we're all in Christ, We, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. Here's Paul's second metaphor of the church. Not a family, but now even more intimate, a body. We are a body, and each of us has a part to play. We don't belong to ourselves, right? That just takes radical individualism and basically throws it out the window, right? My elbow is kind of its own thing, but not really. It's dead without the rest of my body. Same with my knee bone or my skeleton or my nervous system or my heart or my liver or my brain or my hair. All of it is me, Right In the same way, we are a body, and none of us are on our own, and all of us have a part to play. That's what he's getting to. Verse 6, we have different gifts, meaning God has just wired into our body all sorts of latent capacities that are not for us. They are for others, according to the grace given to each of us. It's all gift, if, and that we are to use them to serve one another. If your gift is prophesying, for example, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list. Then next, the rest of the chapter, come over 25 short staccato commands about how we are to drill down from kind of metaphor, we're family, we're body, we're all together, let's serve each other, to how we actually do life together. Verse 9, love must be sincere, must come from the heart, not a show, this isn't play, we have to love each other from the heart, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Jesus' moral vision of right and wrong is at the center of Christian community, you can't get away from it. Be devoted to one another in love. Not just devoted to God, but also devoted to one another. Have you ever said that to somebody? I'm devoted to you. I'm devoted to you in relationship. Honor one another above yourselves. To honor someone is to recognize their special and unique contribution to the church, to your life, and to praise them and appreciate them and thank them and give them their due. Can you imagine if all of us, rather than trying to get other people to honor us, were to go around trying to honor other people? You've done this for me. I thank you for that. I would not be this without you. Thank you for that. Large and small honor. Can you imagine that kind 
kind of a community, if we were to actually do that, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, right? Stir up that inner flame of love. Let's come together and kind of throw more fuel on the fire and spur one another on to follow Jesus. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, suffer together with a buoyancy of spirit based on our shared conviction and the return of Jesus to make all things new, the joy of the spirit, suffer together, pray together, persevere together. 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Those of us who are, have extra, whether it's a lot or a little, are to share with those who don't have enough, to become a community of justice and equity. Practice hospitality, open your home, learn to cook a meal or two or three. If you say, I don't know how to cook, learn. That's what YouTube is for, right? If I can learn, trust me, anybody can learn. Get people around your table from church, brothers, sisters, from your neighborhood, from your workplace. Let your home become, let your table become an altar. Let your home become a mission base to our city. Let it become a place of healing and reconciliation and diversity and justice and love and listening. Practice hospitality. 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. When you face cultural hostility and it's rising right now, we're feeling that in our bones. Become a graveyard for hate. Don't give back in kind. Our call in this coming era is to follow Jesus' example, to be crucified in public, and not to retaliate in kind. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, right? Don't stand aloof from people around you or in enmeshment with people around you, but when, when your family is happy, feel that happiness. When they are sad, feel that sadness. Get involved in the mess of people's pain. Step into people, even when it's inconvenient or it's not fun and you're dealing with your own stuff. And rejoice with those who rejoice. People should never have to censor the successes and joys of life around you. Never have a competition. People should never feel like they have to downplay tall poppy syndrome, which is less of an American thing, but it's spreading to America. It's demonic. We rebuke that spirit. We should be a place not of ego, but where we celebrate one another's successes just as quickly as we grieve one another's failures and wounds. Live in harmony, verse 16, with one another, right? Banish tension and interpersonal conflict. All of that stuff happens, but we have to fight to live at peace with each other in a spirit of gentleness and humility. Hence, do not be proud, which is the root cause of almost all relationships tension and conflict, but be willing to associate with people of low position where we're constantly trying to outserve one another and follow Jesus. Do not be conceited. Notice that's the one command that is repeated in the entire thing because, again, humility is a prerequisite to community. Without that, there's no chance. 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't get back. Don't get even. Don't hurt when you are hurt. Be careful to do what is right. In the eyes of everyone, don't make your moral and social decisions all by yourself, but community discernment, do things together, process life together. You're not on your own. Why should you make decisions on your own? If it is possible, as far as depends on you, because reconciliation is a two-way street, but on your side, live at peace with everyone. Be quick to repent, to apologize, to have hard conversations, to patch up relationships. 19, do not take revenge, my dear 
friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord, and trust your vindication, your reputation, which isn't actually who you are, it's who other people think you are, and trust its vainglory at some point to want a good reputation. Just entrust that to God. He is just. He will lead and guide if it's in this life or the next. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head, meaning you will just outdo him in love. 21, do not, here's the summary sentence, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a beautiful, I feel like we should just give the Bible a round of applause or something right now, but what a beautiful and compelling vision. That's a lot to remember, so to that end, let me summarize all of that down. This is just my attempt at a kind of synthesis into two or three, as Rollheiser would say, commands for the long haul. I would summarize it in three commands. Number one, forgive each other for not being God. That's language not from me, but from Henry Nouwen. Toward the end of his life, he gave a teaching where he said, you know, you can summarize all of discipleship to Jesus in three practices, solitude, community, and ministry. And he said the first command for community is forgive each other for not being God. No church, no community, no relationship, no friendship, no spouse, no family of origin, no parents, no children, no pastor can live up to all of our expectations. Everyone and everything at some point will let you down, including yourself. You can't live up to your own expectations, and neither can I. We are human. We all carry sin around in our body and our genetic code. You know, Christians love to point to Acts chapter 2 as the template for the church and the early church, and we need to be more like the early church. And Acts 2 is great, but I always want to, like, say in a loving tone, like, just keep reading. Like, that's not the end of the story. People don't realize that in Acts 2, the church is still in the honeymoon phase. The same church in Jerusalem goes on to deal with racism full on. Income inequality, power dynamics, persecution, leadership splits, false teaching, debates over theology, disagreement on secondary issue, confusion on what to do, you name it. It is a, Acts is beautiful, but it is anything but utopian. So many people in our generation are disillusioned with the church, and a lot of it is for good reason. In particular, over the last year, we have felt so many of us, I know, just still, even in the last, since January and everything in our nation, it's really hard for a lot of us to process some of the things that are said and done by other people who claim at some level to follow Christ. It's a lot of disillusionment, and not all of it is bad. But the counter-argument is that to be disillusioned is to be stripped of an illusion. Think about the etymology of that word, disillusioned. It's to be stripped of an illusion. And again, that is not all bad. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, which is basically the most popular book in the last 200 years on living in community, after his experience at Finkenwald and what was basically a kind of monastic co-housing community, so meaning he, this was not academic for him, this was based on life experience, said this, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes 
to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions, this is true for women as well, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. It's easy to love the dream of community. It's not a real thing. It's a hypothetical situation. It's easy to love the idea of community or the idea of church or the idea of a relationship or the idea of marriage or the idea of friendship or the idea of you fill in the blank. It's a lot harder to love Joe across the table when he always is talking with his mouth full of food. Am I the only one with that pet peeve? I think I am in my Marty, but wow. Or to love Sarah when she just never, ever stays around to clean the kitchen. She always has to go. Or to love so-and-so when... They're wishy-washy on following Jesus or whatever it is. But as soon as you create a pride position, I'm good, the church is bad, my behavior is good, this behavior is bad, you immediately create a shame position for yourself because what happens when you don't live up to your own expectations? What happens when you aren't good because none of us are always good? I don't care how mature you are, none of us. You immediately create a shame position for yourself and a contempt position for others, where you look down your nose, not at someone's behavior, but at someone's identity and self-worth. You realize that contempt and shame live in an inverse relationship. They are two sides of the same coin. Where there is shame, there is contempt. Where there is contempt, there is shame. And where there is either, there is no humility and there is very little love. This is why I love Romans 12 that we just read, because it's honest. It's beautiful, but it's, it's honest. Paul just noticed what's built into all of the 25-plus commands. He assumes that there's tension, there's interpersonal conflict, that you don't want to have people, you just want to kind of lock yourself in your house and be alone, that you want to get back at people, that you're hurt and you want to get even, that you're full of pride and hubris, that you don't want to share what you have, that you don't want to listen to other people, that you're jealous. And he just assumes that all of that stuff is in you, and he calls the church up out of sin to live into the dream of a family and a body. Second command, I would say, is to listen in love. I remember in my training on spiritual direction a year or two ago, I sat through a lecture from a South African professor on listening, and he started by saying, listening is at the heart of the Trinity. I was like, wait, what? And then he just had us imagine for a while, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you know. Michael Reeves is a theologian we follow, calls the Trinity the cockpit of all Christian thinking. Meaning at some point, every single Christian doctrine or moral goes back to the inner life of God himself. All reality is grounded in ultimate reality, in the inner life of the Trinity. And if you imagine Father and Son and Spirit all listening to one another in love, honoring one another over themselves, it's beautiful. 
Listening is a form of love. Psychologists tell us that when people, and the technical language is feel felt, meaning when they feel that sense of another is listening to me in compassionate attention, not on their phone or in judgment or in over-talking, but just listening. When, when they experience that, we, when we experience that, we experience love and healing. The last year has been traumatic for so many of us, but psychologists also tell us that trauma is not what happens when people experience suffering. Lots of people experience suffering and come out just fine. Trauma is what happens when we experience suffering alone. We don't have anyone to hold that pain with. Robert Stolaro writes, trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. Great language. A relational home. That's the call, to function as a relational home for one another, as a safe place to let each other listen and process with no edit button to let us kind of process all of our emotions, let us help each other name our emotions and make peace with reality and let the pain pass through us in order to find equilibrium in God. Don't misread me here. I said that recently. We're called to be a relational home. And I had a number of people say, that's exactly what the church has not been to me. It's not been a relational home. And I feel that pain. It's very sad. But clear me clearly, I'm not saying the church should be a relational home for you. I'm not even saying you should be a relational home from the church. I'm saying we should be the relational home for each other. That onus of responsibility is on every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And there are two sides to that equation, right? Of listening is the first side, but the other is is sharing, right, in vulnerability. Dr. Tom Muhoff writes about the five levels of communication. Level one is cliche. How's it going? Fine. Level two, facts. What did you do today? How much snow at your house? Is there ice? Did you like Gerald, Gerald go snowboarding down your driveway? Whatever. Level three is opinions. Like, who do you think is going to win this game? Or when do you think I'm going to get the vaccine? Or when do you think our church is going to get together again? Or when do you think we should? Number four is feelings, where you actually share how you are. And you name it. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling grateful. I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling really pessimistic, whatever. And then level five is transparency, where you share not actually, not just how you are, but, but who you are. This is me. Like, no edit button, no filter, good, bad, ugly. This stuff is in me, and I'm not hiding. We must push down, kind of beyond dinner with friends and cliche and opinion and fact and even feeling to not just how we are, but who we are. Not with hundreds of people, but at least with a few. This is not that hard for some of you and very scary for others, especially those of you that are dealing with attachment issues due to your family of origin or your past experience or you're dealing with hurt or you're dealing with wounding from the church or a relationship that's similar to the one you're in. Or just for some of you who by wiring are a little bit more in your head and not as in touch with your emotions and some of that's just how God built you. Even with our closest friends, we often edit our heart and hold back and stay at the surface level. But M. Scott Peck, in his beautiful short book on community, writes, quote, There can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. And there can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. 
So just we must risk. We must listen and share. Third, I would say the last command is to stay. You know, right before COVID hit, I was with a few couples for dinner. Remember that when we would like sit around a table and eat a meal at a restaurant and talk to people and it wasn't muffled, you know? And um, we went around the table and somebody had asked the question, you know, we are all had been kind of in a marriage for a while and, uh, and just asked, hey, what's, what's a marriage lesson that you want to pass on? We around the table, and it was mostly like really beautiful and Christian and biblical and romantic. And then we got to one of my best friends, and he just said, well, I would just say stay. Like, that's my advice. Just whatever happens, stay. And a few people at the table started to laugh and thought that was unromantic. I thought it was honest and it was true. A psychologist mentor of mine recently said to me, intimacy only resides in the safety of commitment. That's why Tinder culture, hookup culture, easy divorce culture is tearing apart the fabric of the human soul and our society itself. It's performance-based, it's shameful, it's embarrassing, people feel deep wounding. We only feel safe with people we know will stay faithful to us no matter how dark our shadow side is. It's the only people we feel safe with. No matter what we say or do, they, they will still be here. Doesn't mean they won't rebuke us or slap us upside the head or call us out, but they will stay. This is why the relationships that have the most potential to form us into Christ-likeness and just full human potential are the long-term ones because they are the people who come to see us as we actually are. Now, there are times to break off a relationship because it's toxic or it's unsafe, that goes without saying, or because God just has a call in your life in another direction and you need to move on. Not all relationships, not all friendships are designed to last until you die, and that's okay. But as a general rule, we stay, or at least we are really slow to go. As someone who's been living in community for many, many years, I can tell you there are seasons when it feels like delight, when I can't wait for our weekly meal, when I can't wait to be together, when I can't wait to share, and there are seasons when it feels like discipline, where I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it, where I don't feel like my felt needs are being met, where I felt like somebody is annoying, and I, it's not quite, you know that feeling is not quite bad enough to like have a hard conversation, but it's bad enough that you're not enjoying your life together right now, <laughs> you know what I mean? The awkward gray zone or whatever. Like they're just, that's life. This is humanity. We're human. I'm sure nobody's ever felt that way about me before, ever. <laughs> We're human. We, we carry this stuff in, our, in the marrow of our bones. The key is just to stay the course, to stay in relationship over the long haul. Forgive, listen, stay. This is just how, this is so non-dramatic and unglamorous, but I think this is how we play our small part in the healing and the renewal of our torn open city. As David Brooks said in a recent interview, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. We're a small group of people. I don't know what percentage of the population of Portland we are as followers of Jesus. It's a very small one. But there are a lot of people right now asking a lot of questions. A lot of the facade of secularism, of individualism, of all the isms of our time is starting to crumble. And people are looking around right now for a better way. And we have all of our issues and all of our problems, but what if we were to find a better way and to invite others in? 
Now, how do we do this? Is there a practice or, in more Portland language, a habit from our rule of life to habituate us away from individualism and tribalism and towards Romans chapter 12 and that kind of a relational home? And yes, it is the practice of living together in community. A few words on that. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to community. It will vary based on your personality, are you introverted or extroverted, your stage of life, your, do you have little kids, are you an empty nester, where you live in the city, all of that. And there are different types of community. There's a book that's been influential on me called The Search to Belong, which is an exploration of a field of sociology developed in the 1960s by a professor named Edward Hall called proxemics, as in the word proximity, which is a, it's a fascinating attempt to measure the kind of relationship you have with another person by your proximity or your distance from them. Think of like when somebody is like too vulnerable for you, what do we say, give me a little space? Like there's, an, there's a physical expression of relationship. He developed a theory with four spheres of relationship. First is the public, which is people who are 12 or more feet away. It's, well, this is, in a, this is all non-COVID math, okay? So ignore all the COVID stuff. And it's 70 plus people in our life. So this is a sports game or a concert or a political rally or the internet or it's church on, not this morning, but it's church on a Sunday. It's your tribe in the positive sense. And that's not bad. It's your people. It's where you get a common history and a common story story and a common future and a common project to work on together. Second is the social, which is people who are four to 12 feet away. It's about 20 to 50 people in your life, people you know at the office or your neighborhood or kind of from around town or events at church. I think of that book, The Strength of Weak Ties. That's the people like Jay who's sitting back here. Jay and I don't know each other super well, but he's a musician. And so I asked him, hey, I need a piano teacher for my kids. Do you know anybody? He didn't. So if you know, please email in. But um, like you, this is the people you ask around like, hey, can I get help with this? Who do you know about that? And you need those kinds of relationships, and often those kinds of relationships become far more in time. Third is the personal, people who are one and a half to four feet away. It's five to 12 people max in your life. Jungian psychologists tell us that's about the maximum number of people, 12 kind of at the outside, who can know your shadow. So just think about that, because that's, that's, that's less people than is in most of our Bridgetown community or our family of origin or our friend group, people who can actually know who you actually are. Are. And then there's the intimate. That's people who are zero to one and a half feet away. And that's about two to four people max. It's your spouse, it's your best friend, it's your confidant or roommate. At Bridgetown, we do our best to curate spaces for you to have relationships in all four spheres. So the public, that would be our Sunday gatherings. And there's a powerful effect, at least in a pre-COVID world and God willing soon, when you come in and in Portland and on the internet, you feel like you're crazy and you're the only one who believes what you believe and lives how you live and thinks what you think. And then you come in and you realize, oh, there's hundreds, just thousands of other people hiding in plain sight in our city who are with me together. Like the, it's like the Elijah movement. No, I have 7,000 and hiding away. Like, you're not alone. We're part of the remnant. Like, and this is our story. This is our history. This is who we are. This is where we're going. This is what we're about. This is crucial. Second is the social. That's events we run like Alpha, our young adults worship tonight. Well, maybe not tonight with the snow. I don't know. Or men and women's. Do we have that tonight? No, no. Stay home. Don't die. Um, then the personal, that's our Bridgetown communities. Then the intimate, that's our Bridgetown triads where we um, teach you group spiritual direction and the confession of sin and listening to one another in love. Now, this is not, to clarify, an attempt 
on our part to control you or to systemize your relational life. That's a fool's errand, and that's not our attempt. It's just our attempt to open up space for you to take initiative. You have to do that. We can't do that for you. God has to do that with you. And the key takeaway from proxemics, here's where I'm going, um, is that our goal is not to move from the public to the intimate. Can you imagine if you had to be intimate with like thousands of people or whatever? Like, no. Like all of the introverts in the room are like already freaking out. The goal is to have healthy relationships in all four spheres. Though for most people, the public is easy to come by and the intimate is very hard. Right? So the growth area for most of us is that kind of 12 and under, who knows our shadow, who knows us as we actually are, who can I express my full self with, who can I doubt with, who can I confess my sin to, who can I share my fears with, my anger with, who can, who can I process and who can I listen to and hold their fear and anger and pain so it's not narcissistic. Where are you strong? It's a great question for all of us, myself included. Where are we strong and where are we weak? in our practice of community. As you know, over the next eight weeks in our communities, we are kind of revisiting and reviewing the eight practices from our rule of life. Your practice for the week ahead is available at bridgetown.church slash future. Um, our saying around here is kind of start where you are, not where you should be. Idealism just is not good for anyone. To that end, we have three levels of practice for you. For, and this is just all invitations. You decide what you do or do not want to do. Um, we're individualists, after all. But these are all invitations for you to kind of enter at your own pace. Entry-level practice is just to get together with another follower of Jesus for a uh, a regular walk or a regular coffee or an in-depth conversation and attempt to move toward levels four and five of communication. How are you and who are you? Level two, our baseline practice, kind of what we would encourage all of you to work toward, every single person in our church to work toward as a baseline, is to share a weekly meal with a community of followers of Jesus, the same people each time, to eat and drink the Lord's Supper, to pray together and for each other, to do life and to practice the way of Jesus. And then the reach practice, for those of you like, I'm there, what's the next step forward, is what in, in church tradition is called the confession of sin, which is just naming, confession is naming reality, it's naming the truth of what is, good and bad, where you just name what is in your spirit in the presence of another loving soul, whether that's with your triad or a close friend or just one other person you know. To end, I promise I'm about done, I recognize that this can be really scary. So many of us have been hurt, not just by the church. In fact, in all honesty, nobody's ever been hurt by the church. The church is the church as an institution. We've been hurt by a person, by a leader, by an authority figure, by a, a girlfriend or boyfriend or husband. Or We've been hurt by people. Because yeah. hurt people hurt. And people who carry sin in their body, which is all of us, leak it out onto other people. And so a lot of us really just don't trust the church. We don't trust other people. We don't trust vulnerability or community right now, particularly after the last year of politics. David Brooks said this in a recent interview, trust is the imprint left by experience. The younger generation, and in context, he's talking about all the data about how Gen, millennials and Gen Z are the least trusting generation in American history. 
So only about 13% of millennials and Gen Z think that most people are trustworthy. For baby boomers, it's in the 60s and 70s, right? Very, we just do not, we've grown up around abuse after abuse after abuse after breakdown after scandal after disappointment after corruption. We just don't trust. The younger generation is untrustful because the world has been untrustworthy. They've grown up in an era with low social capital, a lot of social decay, a lot of family breakdown, financial crisis, all the turmoil of the Trump era. So they look out at the world and they draw the lessons. Their distrust is earned distrust. When faith in God is lost in a church, then the church falls apart. But when faith in each other is lost, then the nation falls apart. To me, the crucial question of how we turn this around is, how can we rebuild trust? How can we rebuild communities where there are trusting relationships? This is our task as the church, and we do it not just for each other, but for our city. How do we rebuild trust? And we do that one relationship at a time, one meal at a time, one conversation at a time. One way to think about trust is the ratio of how many times you've been betrayed versus how many times people have been true to their word. And I know that a lot of you have been betrayed or at least let down and hurt by the church, by community, by other followers of Jesus. I also know that whenever that happens, the enemy comes straight into our mind and the fabric of our body to plant lies that say, therefore, the church is bad, community is bad, you can't trust the church, you can't trust pastors, you can't trust whatever it is. Watching the wave of deconstruction from millennials who are walking away from the faith and from orthodoxy and from the church in droves, not to mention Gen Z, many of whom were never even a part of it, has been heartbreaking for me, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus. In part because I know, as a pastor, I know the story behind the stories so often. So when you hear somebody ranting on Instagram live or whatever about how horrible this church is or that experience was or orthodoxy is oppressive or whatever, I so often know the story. I don't mean that in a, in a pretentious way. I just so often know the pain behind what they're not saying. The pain, the wound. Yes, sometimes they're just rebellion against God's authority but often just the pain and the hurt and the ache for community. And the, tragic is, the tragedy is they think that leaving the church is the way to experience healing and life. And the reality is it's the way that we cement our wounding and we die in God. Again, Henry Nouwen, in a letter... And please just listen to me for a few more minutes. I know this is over my timeline. They forgot to start the clock, so it's just all, it's, I'm so sorry. In a letter was asked, why, why do we need church in a culture of kind of spiritual but not religious, when that's the norm? Why do we need church when we have yoga and brunch and Instagram and individualism? He said this in reply, you are right that all the great saints have found this God, but I also want to say that all the mystics I've read such as John of the Cross, Teresa Vivalia, Thomas Akempis, Meister Eckhart, were all people deeply connected with the church. The church, as you say so clearly, can be in the way of God, but it will never cease to also be the way to God. This is the hard paradox of the religious life. When we give up the church completely, we will end up by losing God. In many ways, we are in the same situation Jesus was in during his lifetime. He strongly criticized the religious leaders of his time, but continued to say that people should listen to their words without following their example. While Jesus was very critical of the religious institutions of his time, he never suggested that people could do without them. And this even is even true today. 
I love his language. The church can be in the way to God, but it will never cease to also be. It can be in the way of God, but it will never cease to also be the way to God. Because living in community is how we become people of love. There's no way to become a person of love if you're not in relationship. The meaning of life is to become a person of love. That will never happen outside the church in the pseudo-community of like attracts like or the anti-community that is gathering around grievance and felt wound. It will only happen when we surrender our autonomy to the beautiful but messy reality of church as a family and a body. As Gav, one of our pastors who's right out here, put it to me this morning, the call is to make the choice to love in a culture of the love of choice. I imagine it's easy to write me off because I'm a pastor, and I have a vested interest in you being a part of the church and our church and in a community. I am a biased source. There's no doubt about that. But please don't write me off. I've been in the church my whole life. I've had the net, a net positive experience, but I've had my share of bad experiences. I've been hurt, and trust me, I have hurt a lot of people. I've been wounded, and I'm sure I have wounded a lot of people, and I get it. Like, there's no utopianism in my mind. I've been around far too long. You know, I'm supposed to be um, on sabbatical right now, but it was delayed due to COVID. Every seven years, our pastors each get kind of to go away for an elongated rest. Um, On my last sabbatical, which was going on eight years ago now, I was in a bad way. It was the low, prior to 2020, it was the low point in my ministry. I had just come off a season kind of leading both our church and Westside Church out in the suburbs, and we were part of a larger kind of multi-church thing. And I was just way too young and immature to do that job well. Um, There was no, like, scandal behind the scenes or anything. There's just a lot of, like, interpersonal conflict and drama, and I just was nowhere even close to emotionally healthy or mature for that. And I was 80% like the perpetrator, not the victim, and I take full responsibility for that. But at the time, my point is I, I felt really hurt at the time. And those of you that have been around know that I went on a sabbatical many years ago. What you don't know is that I almost did not come back. Like, I came really close to just saying, I'm done. I felt like a failure as a leader. I felt really hurt. I felt really mad. I felt embarrassed. And I had a job opportunity as a teaching pastor down in California at the same time. And that sounded really good. It sounds really good today, actually, in the snow. But it sounded really good at the time. And, you know, as I was praying through all of that, I just did not feel the release of the Spirit of God. I felt like, you're not done here. This is your church. And my therapist said something. I have this amazing older therapist. And he said to me something that has changed my life. He said, you know, John Mark, if you quit now, you will always, for the rest of your life, you will lead out of your wound. And he said, sabbatical um, will not heal you. Rest is not curative for wounding. A break from relationship will not make it any better. He said, the only way you will heal is if you go back and you do the same thing, but with maybe different people and for sure in a different way. And I remember sitting there thinking, do we come back or not? And we made the decision to come back. And the last, it's been, you know, seven, eight years, have been the most healing and life-giving, well, not 2020. Let's just take all things 2020 off the table. But prior to that, the most healing and life-giving years of my entire ministry and my entire life. 
some of the people right here in this room, Bethany and Gerald and pretty much everybody in this room, has been such a part of my healing. Relationships, scenarios from my past that I used to just think about and feel my whole body shot through with fear or shame or guilt or anger. Now I feel absolute, total peace. I don't feel like better. I feel completely whole and healed. And that came not through me taking a break or moving away, but actually for me coming back and moving toward. And this is a truth that cuts across all relationships, church or not. Our, our deepest wounds come from relationships and our greatest healings come from relationships as well. We heal not by moving away or running away, but by moving toward. And this is why Jesus, who is the great physician of the soul, who's here to save us. Remember that word save in Greek can just as well be translated heal, right? To save us, to heal us, to restore our soul in union with God. It's why he refuses to give us an individualistic, spiritual, but not religious form of salvation. It's just not, it's not an offer. To follow the call and invitation to follow Jesus is at the same time, it's simultaneously a call to join his family, which is full of broken people like you and, and people like me who are hurt, who hurt, who have mistakes, who have weird things, who believe goofy, all of us who are experiencing healing together in Jesus. That is the call to come and follow Jesus as a community of tight-knit, loving relationships in a culture of individualism and tribalism.